Good morning. Uh, one thing that I forgot to announce, unfortunately, I'm sorry about this, um, but I don't think uh, it was announced last week um, that, uh, you know, we talked to Brandon Sparks about placing membership with the group and um, very gladly, very eagerly, um, we, we've chosen to extend the right hand of fellowship to Brandon and we're just very excited, very encouraged for the way that that's going to help us all grow together in our faith and our love for God, be a blessing to the work here and um, be a blessing to the way that we're able to love you, Brandon, and Brandon to us more, more diligently. Um, and, and a note to make too, Paul, I, I said I asked you to do the closing prayer when Brandon came in just a little late, but Brandon, you still get to do the closing prayer? Okay, very good. All right, so uh, our lesson this morning is on walking worthy of our calling. So in Ephesians 4, um, there's just such a grand series of exhortations and commands and applications that they're heart-changing. They're, they're life-changing. They're just continuously humbling and converting. And uh, today we're going to be talking about, like I mentioned before the scripture reading, verse 28 and 29, with laboring, sharing, and edifying. But before we talk more about that, I just want to reread the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 4 and make a couple of introductory remarks again about this series and uh, you know some things that can help us, I think, maybe immerse ourselves just very briefly back into the mind that um, is in the context here. So Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 1 through 3, says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You know, there's a lot of things that people in the world will become very passionate about. Um, you'll see for, for a lot of jobs or for a lot of calls, whether it be an athletic calling, an academic calling, or whatever it is, people will become very devoted to the cause or the calling that they see as really worth something, right? You know, and one of the things about our calling in Christ is there's nothing, nothing that can elicit greater devotion, more genuine and passionate earnestness for a cause than the calling we have in Christ. But the danger is there are very few things that can also at the same time be so taken for granted despite having such grand and glorious importance in the calling. And so we're being called like the song we sang. I've got my songbook open. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold o'er my being absolute sway. Fill with thy spirit till all shall see Christ only always living in me. God is constantly calling us on the basis of Christ to be more devoted, to be more genuine in our heart, in our, our, our thoughtfulness about our faith, how to apply ourselves more creatively to doing what God has called us to do, to put into our mind grander and higher thoughts of God's glory and God's work, to be more Christ-like in our behavior, in our attitude, in our mind. And one of the things for the purpose of where we are in this lesson, God also calls us in the context where we are in Ephesians 4. In verse 17 through 24, we're called to have a more introspective, humble, and selfless perspective. 
We're being called to have a perspective that isn't darkened or callous or hard-hearted. And what that means is we need to have tender hearts that can be convicted and changed by God's word. We need to be able to ask ourselves very honest questions that, pers- that uh, cause us to pursue meaningful change in our daily lives, right? So all of these applications we're going to be looking at are very practical very real applications that we can be making on a daily basis. And we're called to just have very humble attitudes to really look within ourselves and and really ask ourselves the questions that can help us to make changes in our lives. So the first thing with Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, very obvious uh, exhortation is stop stealing. But that's not where it ends. If you've noticed so far, even in verse 25, Uh, These are all commands that encourage repentance in its purity. Um, Repentance is not just stopping sin, right? So like last month when we talked about lying, the command is is not just if you're lying, just stop doing that. It's replace lying, renovate lying with truth. Instead of lying, learn to speak truth. Make truth your language. And it's the same thing here. Stop stealing But it's not just stop the habit or stop the practice. It's start working and start sharing. Renovate stealing with labor and sharing and generosity. It's going to be the same with our words. It's not just don't speak unwholesome words. It's replace unwholesome words with edifying, gracious words. At the end of the chapter, it's not just put away bitterness and wrath and malice. It's put on forgiveness, tenderheartedness, kindness, right? And so that's something with repentance is it's not just that we are striving to put sin away from our lives. We are striving to bring righteousness into our lives. We are striving to bring more holiness into our lives. Again, like the songs that we've sang already. So I just want to bring this up within the context again of Ephesians 4. Stealing is ultimately an issue of a hardened heart and a calloused conscience and a darkened understanding. Stealing disregards the victim. Stealing doesn't give consideration to the harm being done by the practice, the damage that's done to the heart of the one being stolen from. Stealing exalts self while diminishing the damage on others again. Stealing doesn't recognize the damage done to God and to God's image. Stealing doesn't uh, comprehend the damage being done to the heart and the conscience and doing such a thing without a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. The thing is, stealing is not just a bad practice or a sinful practice. Stealing comes from a condition of heart that is corrupt and calloused. So the encouragement is going to be stop doing this which takes from others and has callousness driving it and instead consider the needs of those that you can be contributing to. Before we talk more about that though, if you want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 33... Um, just to emphasize that God's solution to stealing has actually always been giving back and sharing. Um, Ezekiel chapter 33, it's just said very succinctly uh, in this passage, Ezekiel 33, verses 14 and 15. Uh, Ezekiel 33, verses 14 and 15. This reads, But when I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and he turns from his sin and practices justice and righteousness, If a wicked man restores a pledge, pays back what he has taken by robbery, walks by the statutes which ensure life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. 
And just as a side note, Leviticus chapter 6, when it's talking about the system of sacrifice with the Levitical priesthood and the temple and tabernacle, um, it mentions not just giving back, but actually giving back more. It mentions adding one-fifth onto anything that's been stolen. So if it was like money, you would give back the amount of money you had taken, but then you would add one-fifth onto that price that you had taken. So God's solution has always been remembering what you've stolen, if it's still with you, giving it back, but then being humbled by going back to that person to return it, but also then giving back more. It's the idea of stealing creates an indebtedness to the one stolen from. So with labor and, and sharing, a product of our faith and a quality of righteousness is having not just an ambition, but a fierce ambition to work. When possible, obviously. Obviously there's circumstances we'll be in where we're just not able really to work because of maybe maybe physical or mental limitations. But the idea, though, is fundamentally still, faith cultivates this fierce ambition to want to supply for the needs of others and to not just take from others without working for what's being received. Uh, Remember Paul's example in Acts chapter 20, if you want to turn there as well. Um, When Paul was talking to the elders at Ephesus and instructing them about his example and how important it was to remember the example that he was leaving with them so that they could imitate it as he had been imitating Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 20 again, verses 33 through 35. So again, this is Paul the Apostle talking to the shepherds in Ephesus. He says, I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, You must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. You know, I could put an exhausting list of passages through God's history with Israel where God from the very beginning, he is constantly urging an attitude of generosity to the needy. From the law of Moses onward, through the prophets, in Jesus, in the New Testament epistles, God is constantly urging us to have a generous mentality toward the poor and the needy. But God continuously emphasizes this because, again, in the world, we are constantly being pushed to have a hardened heart and a calloused conscience and a darkened understanding. Practices like stealing strengthen a conscience that doesn't give due regard to the needs of those who are afflicted around us, right? So just to emphasize again that Paul's example He doesn't leave as an option, but as command, that this is an example that we must imitate, not only so that we can work to supply for our own needs, but also for the needs of others in imitating Jesus' example. So especially those who steal, they need to be striving to labor and work with their own hands. But what does this mean? And I'd be interested in what what your thoughts are on this, Um, uh, but this is something that I think um, is not just necessarily, you know, a physically laborious job necessarily. I think it's meaning the willingness, first of all, to do any kind of work. You know, whether it's mowing a lawn, whether it's janitorial work, working at a fast food place, whatever it is, if if you're willing to work with your own hands, there's no job that is beneath you. There's no job that's too dirty for you or too low paying in order to get it. So I think, first of all, that we need to be willing to do any kind of work. Christ-likeness is manifested in not feeling too good for anything. That if it's something we can do, we creatively are looking for reasons to work hard, 
We want to put our hands to things to be productive. And again, we're willing even to have joy doing things that other people resent having to do and involve themselves in. But I think it's, it's not just the willingness to do any kind of job. It's really doing any kind of job. So like my dad, for instance, and my mom and my brother, uh, they're all computer programmers, as most of you know. And that's not, that's not really like a labor position. You're literally like sitting down all day. So if you're going to get exercise, you have to do it outside of the job. But would you say that they're, in, in principle, working with their own hands? And so I think there's a principle in this. Even if it's not a directly laborious job, it's taking responsibility and working a job where you are doing a job, right? And that it's not just, again, you taking from the income of others and for the labor of others, but you yourself are the one laboring and taking responsibility for yourself, right? So it's the willingness to do any job, but it is the doing of any job as well, whatever it might be. Now, the ambition, I think, in this is important. And all of this is fairly straightforward, but in Ephesians chapter 4, the purpose of work is not just to work. It's not just to establish stability in somebody's life or to be able to purchase possessions to find a comfortable way of living. God puts here the ambition of working is not self-motivated or selfishly motivated. The whole purpose of this person working is in complete opposition to the reason why they were stealing. A person who steals, steals for themselves. But a person here who's working is working for others. So the ambition is to have something to share specifically in verse 28. Notice, it's to share with one who has need. So it's a complete and radical change of perspective, right? That I'm trying to completely put my focus on the needs of others, especially those who are around me who do have legitimate needs that I can help to participate in contributing to. So again, it's not just a change of practice, it's a renovation of mind. It's a change of perspective. It's a change of conscience. It's a change of heart. It's a change of understanding. It's a change in the way I think about myself and those around me, but especially it's a change in the way that I think about God and my relationship with God. All right. So those who steal are to steal no longer, but instead are to labor, working with their own hands, performing what is good, that they may have something to share with those who have need. So the next command, I want to spend more time with verse 29. I want to start just talking specifically with unwholesome words. So in verse 29, it says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Just a brief comment on that word, let. Um, let is a word that is kind of like a hidden command. So it's not like the Ten Commandments where it's just saying, like, don't do this or do this. Let is a command that in a way is concealed within an appeal to the will. It's a command that's saying, like, let us go in this direction, Right? So it's not like this is saying this is optional, but rather that this is a command that's making an appeal to the heart and to the will to put it into practice, right? First principle of this. Words have incredible influence and power on the heart, both yours and mine, but also on others as well. Um, And I wasn't sure what word to use there to describe Uh, just how influential our words are. But I don't think it can be overstated. Um, If you look at James chapter 3, verse 2, rather, not James chapter 1. 
James chapter 3, verse 2. Um, verses 1 through 12, James gives a longer explanation on the power of our words. And in verse 2, James is talking about let not many of you become teachers because we're all going to end up coming under judgment, but those who teach under stricter judgment. And then in verse 2 he says, For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Um, So for James to say that we all stumble in many ways, humility recognizes how easy it is to make mistakes or even sin with the tongue because the tongue, as he describes it, is like a very small rudder commanding an entire ship or a small flame that sets on fire an entire forest. Uh, Many of you probably, if not all of you, are aware of the big forest fires that have been going on on the west side. Um, I think it started in California and it like went halfway across the entire country. Um, I remember in Minnesota a couple weeks ago, um, there's a brother on Facebook who actually posted a picture in Minnesota, mind you, of how the ash clouds from the western fires had actually reached Minnesota and had like darkened the sky in midday so that you couldn't even see the sun because of the ash clouds. Um, Now, a lot of you have probably heard how those wildfires started. It was actually a gender reveal party. Um, So way out in the west where it's very dry, somebody for a gender reveal had like a smoke bomb or something. When the smoke bomb went off, it was like this little, little spark. Fire starts, and next thing you know, half of the country is actually literally engulfed in flames because of this little spark at somebody's gender reveal party. That's exactly how the tongue is. The tongue has incredible power, incredible influence to do either great damage or to cause great good. And it's all in the power of our tongue. And humility recognizes the power of the tongue and respects it carefully. And again, this is James 3, verse 8, not James 1, verse 8. Um, In James 3, verse 8, it's like a poison. And so James, in the end of verse 8 here, mentions that the tongue is like a deadly poison and no one can tame the tongue. And it's not that the tongue cannot be put in subjection. It's that no man has the power to have subjection of their tongue. Only God is the one who can help us to bring our words into proper control for godly purposes. But the point rather is that the effect of our words might not be something that's visibly evident, but that makes it even more dangerous and damaging. Because just like a poison, you can't necessarily see the immediate effect of poison because the damage really starts within, kind of like a cancer. Um, I'll bring this up at the end of the lesson with uh, the next point with edification. Um, But I've been very close to somebody who was bullied a lot uh, in elementary school when they were younger. Um, And I didn't really know what was going on back then. I've learned more about it as we've gotten older. Um, But the words that they were hearing while they were at school had left an incredibly damaging impact on this person's way of seeing themselves. It had made them withdraw within themselves. It had caused them to be very closed off, very emotionally unstable. And a lot of it was simply because things they were hearing from others that were damaging their heart and affecting their heart. And this, in turn, was causing ripple effects through their life um, long after the fact. And in elementary school, I remember hearing you know, the clever saying, teachers would bring this up and things like that. Uh, Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. 
But then after elementary school, like for the rest of my life, I've always heard everybody say that saying was like a complete lie, which is, which is true. Uh, words do have power, and we need to be confronted with the power of words and how to be healed as well in our hearts from damaging words. So really the first thing with James 3, um, just some of these very brief points drawn out from here, but also just Ephesians 4. We really need to learn to be more reflective and self-aware of the impact that our words are having on others. We'll talk about this in just a moment on defining more specifically what unwholesome would mean practically. But I think we just have to be aware that if our words are having a negative effect on others, if we're hurting others with our words, if it's not necessary that we hurt because it's not for a healing purpose of rebuke, but is really just being inconsiderate or inappropriate, we need to take that seriously. We just have to be honest with the effect that our words are having. We need to notice how are people being affected by our speech. And if we're making cutting remarks, sarcastic remarks, or even remarks that we think are funny, but it's actually demeaning or degrading or hurtful, we really need to be very, very honest, very self-reflective about that and being willing to be changing, being willing to make a change in that um, when we realize that. Turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 and 37. Um, Jesus says to me some of the most terrifying things that are ever said um, in God's word about words. And we'll talk about that more here after reading it. Um, one, of the, one of the things to point out here is the word unwholesome literally means rotten. And it's actually a word that is, that is used here in verse 33. When Jesus says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad, that word translated into English, bad, is the same root word, the Greek word, unwholesome. It's the same word used in this context. And ironically, Jesus is talking about words here, and so let's keep reading. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the, for out of, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. The evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. If we don't learn to be honest and reflective, to bring our own judgment guided by God's word on our own speech, God is going to judge our speech. And he's going to judge it in a way that is not going to be, um, it's not going to be good for us if we don't recognize the power of our words. God cares about careless words. Just imagine the scene in verse 36. Jesus says that for every careless word, man will give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Just imagine that, standing before the throne of God and words that you've long forgotten about, Words that you haven't given consideration of, but words that matter to God, God has them written down and he's ready to bring them up on the day of judgment. Now that doesn't mean that God is not forgiving, but it means that again, we need to be humbled. We need to experience godly sorrow for the words that we speak that are inconsiderate and inappropriate. The context of this is many of the Jews were accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the ruler of demons, by the devil himself. And they were disregarding 
all of the evidence that Jesus was valuable to God. They were disregarding God's own words and his commands. They were speaking presumptuously and carelessly. And Jesus, by saying this, wasn't trying to push them away. He was trying to bring them closer by helping them to see that they were saying things thoughtlessly that were separating them from God. So again, we need to understand that God cares about words we speak that we may give very little care to at all. So let's define unwholesome a little more with it being rotten. In verse 33, Jesus compares a good tree with good fruit and a bad tree with bad fruit as a way of relating things that come from a heart that is connected with God and things that come out of a heart that is disconnected from God. So when we're dealing with unwholesome or rotten words, we're dealing with words that are empty of holiness and godliness and love. Maybe a more practical way to think about this, any words that are unloving, so things that don't give due regard to man being created in the image of God, how valuable people are to God, how valuable authorities are to God, even more specifically, how valuable those in authority like our president, no matter who's in office. We need to be very, very careful with our words, especially when speaking of others, when it's most tempting to participate in slander or empty gossip. But vulgarities. Uh, even the world recognizes things that are vulgar and inappropriate. You know, that's why we have for movies things like PG-13 ratings. Or even with musical albums, they'll have warnings of explicit content. So even the world understands that there are some words that are just vulgar in their nature. Those words ought to have absolutely no place anywhere in a Christian's vocabulary. And again, when those things come out, it's not that you disconnect yourself completely and withdraw. It's draw nearer and recognize that there needs to be a change of heart. But also just words that are inappropriate. You know, oftentimes there's things that can be said thoughtlessly that are, again, they're needlessly hurtful. They're not spoken with wisdom. And again, there may be something that's said passively or sarcastically that actually was even intended to be hurtful. And those are things that, again, we just need to be honest and aware of so that we can experience godly sorrow and repent of these things. You know, it, the world is not going to treat these things as seriously as God does. Just like lying and stealing. You know, these are things that are like the butt of jokes in films and entertainment. You know, you watch a TV show and you'll see that lying is a big push for the story to move forward. A, even a comical thing that helps the story move forward. But in God's perspective, lying is not something that is funny or passive. It's something that's to be taken seriously. And it's the same with stealing and it's the same with vulgarities, inappropriateness in our speech and unloving attitudes in the way that we talk. These are things that we need to have God's perspective of. We need to experience appropriate action when we say things that we know we ought not to say. So, again, it's not just that we stop saying things like this. It's that we start striving to speak differently. We need training and discipline and focus in the next part of this exhortation. So back in Ephesians chapter 4, um, the second half of the command, I think, is very challenging and a very high calling. And so I want to spend the rest of the lesson just trying to be thoughtful about how can we do this. So Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. 
Um, but only such a word is as, as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that you will give grace to those who hear. It would help to speak about edifying and what that means. To edify is to build up, but it specifically is a word that means building up in relation to God or building up somebody's relationship with God. And so this is a very deliberate, very thoughtful speech. And the idea is we have control of what we're able to say or what we do say, right? So it's just like anger. We talked about last month that we are responsible for our own anger, right? We are responsible if we have an outburst of anger. We can't blame it on circumstances or blame others. It's our own hearts that we need to take responsibility for. It's the same with our words, that we do have the ability to control our words and think about what we say before we speak. And so to edify is to be thoughtful about how can I speak in a way that helps this person or gives consideration for where this person is in relation to God. Edification, though, is not just a word. It's also an an internal effect. And so it's not just that you're speaking something. It's that you're hoping that there will be some kind of effect from your word that will help this person's heart. And it's not just also having a Bible study or directly quoting scripture. God, for instance, he calls us and commands us to pursue peace with all men. And so is it edifying if you are speaking to somebody, interacting with somebody because of your desire to have peace with them, even if it's not directly quoting scripture, even if it's not having an immediate Bible study with them, that's edifying because you are considering where you are in your relationship to God with a person and where that person is in relation to God. So edification may just be even being loving and kind. God commands us to give kindness in our words, to give grace in our words. So edification may be speaking for for reason of being kind, being thoughtful, being considerate, being gracious in our words. And just one more principle here on this. Why do we need this? We desperately need this because the world doesn't encourage this. The world does the opposite of this. And our hearts are easily discouraged. I think the more that we see our own need for edification, the more driven we are to edify others, but also to pursue opportunities for edification, like these assemblies and Bible studies. But the world does everything to diminish, to undermine our relationship with God. We can't expect that the world edifies us or teaches us about edification. You know, and if we're striving to live a godly life, it only becomes more apparent that the world and worldly things do everything that they can again to destroy a relationship with God, to put God out of our minds and to put encouragement away from us and far from us. But it's not just the world. So I'm going to try to figure out how to say this, but um, I've noticed with myself that I'm very easily discouraged in my thoughts Sometimes not even as a consequence of what other people have said or even what's going on around me. Sometimes just because of how sin has affected my mind, even from the past, it can be difficult for me within myself to not just discourage myself in my own way of thinking, right? Um, It can be very easy for me to just feed into my own insecurities and to begin thinking in a way that discourages me or demotivates me or just makes it more difficult for me to feel motivated in my relationship with God. And so we need to be edifying one another just in the fact that we're aware of the fact 
that we need these things and we pay attention to the condition of our own hearts and the world around us. So finally, how can we be more edifying in our speech? Um, And this is kind of a difficult thing because it doesn't really outline black and white. Here is exactly how you do this. And this is something that, again, it's, it's a high calling that I'm still figuring out and still having to think, how can I bring this into my own life more effectually? Uh, but we need to think about this. How can we be more edifying in the way that we talk? I think one really straightforward and really simple thing is we need to think more about this command. Um, it's like James chapter 1, where we hear God's word And it's not just the moment in hearing it. It's not just the study where it's brought up. It's in continuing to remember and meditate on it, especially when it's applicable. Are you going to talk to people in this coming week? Do you think you're going to be having conversations in this coming week? Those of us who are married, is it possible that we're going to interact with our spouses at some point this week? I think that's pretty likely. So there are so many opportunities in this coming week every single day to meditate on this command and remember it that at the very least there's so much room for self-discovery that really I think so much of New Testament command is principle being entrusted to those who are willing. Again, kind of like that let in the beginning of it, an appeal to the will. That the reality is if you're not very willing, if your heart's really not even in a place to consider this, It doesn't matter what I say in this lesson. It doesn't matter how I try to outline it maybe practically. The reality is, if this doesn't matter enough to meditate on it beyond the moment of this lesson, it will not have its appropriate effect in changing your heart. So, for one, we just need to remember this. We need to remember that God says this. We need to be seeking God's help. For two, we need to be finding ways to bring the gospel into everyday conversation. Again, Edification is not always saying God's name or quoting a scripture or having a Bible study. But that being the case, we still need to be looking for ways to bring the gospel into our everyday language. Even simple things like people ask about how your weekend was and you could talk about how encouraging it was to meet with the church here. People ask how you're doing and you could just mention that because God is so good and and has given you so much mercy, you're doing quite well. You could even say when you're talking about the future, Lord willing. Um, And I've found that just saying Lord willing itself creates a lot of opportunity for spiritual conversations with people. But the idea is that the way that we talk sets us apart, I think, most evidently from others around us. The way that we talk makes it most clear where our lives really are, where our focus is is most fixated, right? So we need to be finding ways to bring the gospel, to weave it into our everyday conversations. And then finally, something very simple. We need to start with people we know we will consistently talk to. What I find is spiritual disciplines are never just a one-and-done kind of thing. Spiritual disciplines, submitting to God, always involves the exposure of our weaknesses, It always exposes whether or not I'm willing to really be patient with my applications. It helps me see how much further there is to go in submitting to God's word, how much more my heart needs to be refined to make consistent applications of what God says. And so we need to be willing to even start small, that if there's somebody that I know I'm going to be consistently talking to, then I need to be praying for wisdom 
first of all, to just ask for God's help, help me talk more meaningfully to this person who I'm going to be interacting with. And it just needs to be constantly on our minds. Again, God cares about what we say, and even if we can't visibly see the effect, our words make such a difference in the people who hear us talk. So we just need to be willing to start somewhere and be willing to make consistent applications and consistently praying for wisdom in these things. And more than anything, we need to start with one another. You know, God has given us one another as a gift for edifying purposes. We should understand with one another more than anything how much we need edification to be motivated in serving God every day. We have phones where we can text each other. We have phones where we can call one another. We can write one another letters. And I receive texts and and letters, and it's so encouraging. And so those are the kinds of things we can do that are very simple, not even time-consuming things, that can make significant differences, again, in hidden ways in the heart that motivate us to serve God. So we need to be thoughtful. Getting back to the beginning principle of the lesson, God is calling us to be more self-reflective about everything we do. God is calling us to be more selfless in our perspective. He's calling us to make continuous, ongoing, meaningful changes. Changes in our practices, changes in our perspective, changes in the way we talk, changes in the way we treat those around us, changes in the way that we think about Jesus and the glory of what we've received from him that equips us to live new lives. So that's where we'll stop for this morning. Um, If you're not in the kingdom of God this morning, um, I would appeal to you to just, again, see the riches of what God has done that even makes a lesson like this possible. You know, this is the nature of faith in God's kingdom. These are very simplistic applications, very quiet applications. But in Ephesians 1 through 3, this is all based in the calling that comes from the work of God that is beyond explanation and beyond comprehension. That God is offering us to be liberated from his wrath. He is calling us to see that he is offering the riches of an inheritance within his own kingdom through the sacrifice of his son to grant us the mercy that we desperately need to live new lives in devotion to him. So if there's anything we can do for you this morning, please bring it forward while we stand and sing an imitation song.